0: Hey everybody, this is David Green. I'm the co-founder of Fearless Media and your host here on Left, Right and Center. I don't know about you all, but I feel like COVID basically erased my ability to judge time. I have no clue if something happened six months ago or if it was three years ago or if it was yesterday. Maybe because COVID hit, our world shut down. And when was that? Five years ago? It was actually three years ago. Feels like a lifetime. Feels like just yesterday. So it scrambled everything for us. But, you know, we think about whatever time it was since COVID started. There are a lot of unanswered questions, even though it feels like we're emerging, and pretty significant questions through all this. And one of them is, where the hell did COVID come from? Who or what is to blame for wrecking our entire world? Of course, this became political, as all things do now, leading Democrats, joined scientists, in suggesting that the virus emerged from nature, maybe a bat at a Chinese wet market. Numerous Republicans, including then-President Donald Trump, insisted it came from a lab in Wuhan province, which led to all kinds of wild speculation. Was it just an accidental leak? Was it deliberately released by somebody at the lab? Ultimately, there have been no real answers, though this week the debate came back into view after the U.S. Energy Department announced with, quote, low confidence that a lab accident was the most likely origin. This has, of course, reignited a storm of finger-pointing, and it adds a new chapter to the important conversation that we were having on the show last week about how Internet platforms should handle, quote, misinformation, and if unsubstantiated claims should be taken down from social media platforms if they're deemed dangerous, and if so, who exactly should make those rules? Well, our crew is back. We have Moa who's executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. He was also communications director for the Democratic National Committee and an advisor to Hillary Clinton. And Sarah Isger is here. She is senior editor at the Dispatch. She is a lawyer and was spokesperson at the Department of Justice under President Trump. Welcome back to you both. Last week we were together in a room. Now we're not. This is, um, but we're going to make it work. <laughs> we are. I'm, I'm a little lonely, but. Well, Happy to be back. I'm glad we're connected, even though virtually. So we have a lot of Republicans right now who are basically saying, told you so, with this U.S. Energy Department announcement. And, and I don't know. I don't find that really helpful because we still don't know anything about the origins of COVID. But, but I do feel like there's some deeper and more interesting questions to explore. And we, and we were starting to get into this last week. And I think there's, there's more to grapple with now.
1: Yeah. So let me explain the told you so. Because the told you so isn't, I told you so it escaped from a lab. The told you so is about people shutting down conversations about uh, the media, calling it a wild conspiracy theory and refusing to to talk to or acknowledge the possibility of this. I don't know where COVID came from, mind you. I, I, and I am no expert to even be able to review, some of which is classified, of these various intelligence agencies. We now have six. Two have said they think it's most likely that it came from this lab. Uh, and four have said that it's not. So it's super helpful it, again, if the agencies
0: can't even agree right, on what's right? what they think they know with low confidence.
1: So it's not about where COVID came from. It's about who gets to decide what is acceptable discourse. And you've seen folks on the left, pundits, Mehdi Hassan, for instance, say, yeah, well, the reason we couldn't allow that conversation, the reason we had to label it conspiracy theory and misinformation is because it was being promoted by people who supported Donald Trump. And- There's something deeply offensive about that, right? Not because they don't like people on the right. Fair enough. Whatever. You have your political ideology. But this idea that your answer to that is to shut down the conversation so that you don't have to have that debate, um, yeah, that's pretty bad. Or that you're not even, as a journalist, interested and skeptical of what the government is telling you or what public health officials are telling you, because that could like help the other political side yikes and we've seen similar stuff with mask mandates right the the Cochrane review which is a meta study again and i want to be clear it didn't say masks don't work what it found was that in the studies that they reviewed there wasn't sufficient evidence to say that masks were effective in preventing the spread of COVID. Um, There's, you know, uh, the vaccine. There was this clip being circulated from Rachel Maddow, of course, where she was saying, we know for a fact that the vaccine prevents you from getting COVID entirely. And if you're vaccinated, you cannot give COVID to someone else. It's not that I don't doubt she believed that at the time or that she was lying to her audience. But it's the lack of skepticism. It's the lack of asking questions. And that when people do, you attack them as harmful, that they're committing some violence, that they should be stopped from talking. And it's because of a political ideology and not because of the underlying truth of the matter.
0: Well, can I say something about that? And then, Mo, I, w- I want to let you jump in. There, there are a lot of things I, we could talk about. I mean, what should or should not have been allowed to be up there on platforms about— Vaccines and about masks, I mean, there's a lot that we could cover together and we and we will, but I, I want to like sort of drill down the Donald Trump connection because I, I think the point that people are making, I mean even if we do look back and say that suggestions that this was leaked from a lab um, should have been allowed to stay up when posts like that were taken down, the context here is important. Donald Trump was throwing around racist. Phraseology like Kung Flu, there was an increase in violence against Asian Americans. And so the danger of allowing a narrative to spread, like that China deliberately started a pandemic, right when you had a president fueling these flames of hate. I mean, the, the danger to people was real. And that's just a thing we need to think say it's out loud. Funny?
1: Don't you think it's funny that the thing that was deemed racist was that a lab that was working on similar type viruses, that it could have escaped from that, that was deemed the racist thing? But the because too many people ate bats, that was the not racist theory. Come on, like well, it's who gets to deem what's racist and not. Like once again, we're just back to the same problem.
0: Yes, we are back to the same problem and the same big question. But I, I just don't want to lose sight of the fact that the Donald Trump connection, the reason that there was there was hesitation to to do anything to fuel that narrative, was was a real concern.
1: But it shouldn't matter to real journalists. Real journalists should have been interested in this question, and they weren't.
0: Some were, but I but I hear you, Mo. Yeah, I've
2: been thinking about this a lot over the past few days. You know, I, I I was at a conference not long ago and was talking with a number of scientists, and we actually had this most the most fascinating conversation about defining the word science, defining what science actually is. Because there is a tendency amongst many people to say, follow the science, because the science will give us all the answers. And I was with a group of scientists who all bristled at that, and they said, no. So what science is. Science is knowing which questions to follow. And that's what science actually is. And I think about that in the context of this conversation because I think this has been a very humbling episode in our national discourse. Um, and we all immediately, many of us immediately, in the aftermath of COVID, started saying, follow the science. The scientists are telling us one thing. And so, therefore, it is absolute. But I do think taking a step back and remembering that it's actually the knowing what questions to follow is really what we should be doing. And this is a question that we're still following. I think that there's a lot of culpability here to spread around. I really do. I think, you know, if you look back at at the trajectory of this debate and this conversation, I actually think the scientific community was pretty measured. They may be the only ones who were in saying that the evidence showed that it was likely something that happened naturally, that it wasn't a manufactured virus or genetically altered virus, and that it was most likely it came from a market. They didn't fully rule out the lab, but they said the evidence kind of showed that it probably wasn't. That's still where much of the scientific community is today. But they were very measured in how they talked about it. Then, of course, we all jumped in, and we screwed it all up. The political actors on both sides, the media, those of us who get paid to try to you know, uh, take this information and make it policy or make it politics, we screwed it all up. I'm with you, David. You, you, you took a lot of what I was going to say. I think part of the reason the left reacted the way it did was because it was in the context against the backdrop of a president who was peddling racist tropes while talking about this and conflating it, giving the impression that this was manufactured by the Chinese government or the Chinese people. And as a result, it was creating a lot of anti-Asian hate and backlash. And a lot of people were reacting to that. We shouldn't have reacted to that entirely. We should have pushed back on the racism, but leave the question open. Donald Trump was mischaracterizing this theory, and we could have made that point better. I think the media could have made that point better. Um, And I think a lot of Republicans could have made that point better. A lot of Republicans who do peddle in hate, who do enjoy um, or see the political incentive in division, saw the value in conflating this. And so they were quite content to allow it to get conflated, even if they were maybe a little careful in how they worded it, they were quite content with it being conflated because there was political incentive there. So the science is still chasing the question. We should all
0: support that. And it's still an open question. But what should we all learn? Like what, What? let me ask you both. Like what? what can we all learn the next time we, God forbid, go through something Like this. I mean, Sarah, you you brought up vaccines. You brought up masks. I mean, I I think there has to be a place where if, you know, leaders and scientists are saying that the way to save your life is to get a vaccine and and to wear a mask, to allow people just freely to say masks don't work at all and vaccines will kill you, like that's not good. But like, what have you learned from this in terms of where where, if at all, there should be some kind of boundary?
1: Okay. Three points. One, I think that you and Mo are, are, are making excellent points, but are sort of letting yourselves, and I don't mean you two in particular, but your side, whatever, off the hook a little bit. And let me explain why. One, um, it's not just pundits on the left. It was reporters. It was um, scientists as well. Like everyone got cowed by this idea that again was from the left, that we couldn't talk about this because it was racism. And I think that was a real, real problem Uh, and, and especially how it cowed the scientific community, because you did have people who were saying, well, wait, I mean, it's still a total possibility that this came from the lab. Um, you know, we're looking at the genetic markers and it does look like it's more natural origins. I'm going to
0: change policy. Like we might, the scientists might exactly. have looked into that less. We might know more today than we, <laughs> than we do if, if we had actually like allowed that to be, you know, more of a possibility this lab.
1: But they were silenced as well. And I think that's a problem. But two, in terms of what we've learned. um, So look, y'all are talking about the for good reason, right? The origins of the of the thing and, and Trump's comments and they were way over the top, and I get that. But explain why the exact same thing happened with mask mandates. That wasn't racism. That was just A bunch of folks on the left saying, we know better. And this gets to, I know it's an old song I've been singing on this podcast, but this gets to the failure of the small P progressive movement of the last hundred years. This idea that if we just had the smartest people and the experts running our government and telling us all what to do, we'd be better off instead of that messy, compromising, legislative, democratic process, which lets the dum-dums actually have a say in things. And COVID exacerbated all the worst parts of that debate. And the progressive side lost, and it lost in a really harmful way, I think, because it undermined people's faith in the experts in an up-close, personal way, in their lives, in their economy, in their kids' schools. And I'm not sure it's like the expert side. And we do need, it's a balance, right? We do want experts. We want them running for office, by the way, as well. We've undermined the value of expertise. And at the same time, it came at the expense of as I said, like this idea, like, well, we can't let the dum-dums decide not to wear masks. So we're just gonna tell them they can't even talk about the possibility that the masks don't work. And now the answer is we don't know. We we don't even have the evidence that they do work. Yikes.
0: Can we agree, though, that there's a difference between, say, posting something, questioning whether masks work during a pandemic, saying, I'm I'm not convinced of the science, you should ask your Leaders in your community, your elected leaders, like what the evidence is that versus don't wear masks, they could kill you or don't wear masks. They don't work at all. I mean, that I mean, there, there are distinctions here that are that are important. And I feel like boundaries need to be drawn and and, and, and where to draw them is is the conversation we're all having. Look,
2: our political leaders do the best that they can with what's presented to them. And science is not absolute. And I think it is important that we continue to acknowledge that, that that there's always going to be a, a dissenting report. There's always going to be dissenting scientists who point to different things. And the political leaders need to make a judgment based on what the information in front of them is and make the best call that they can if we're waiting for uh, you know, the, the 100% uh, marker on any scientific issue before we start making policy decisions, we're never going to get that. We're never going to get that. But when our policymakers are pre- presented with a preponderance of evidence from a majority of the scientific community, I get why they would act on it and why they would be aggressive on it. And I get then why the other side would start to demonize that. And it's that demonization, I think, that concerns me. I think that's what tends to lead towards the lack of trust in uh, in in expertise that I think is becoming more and more damaging to our national discourse. We're taking scientific information and scientific hypotheses and trying to turn it into public policy. It's always going to be messy. And what we've learned how to do right now in the political victimization complex is how to monetize that incentivize that conflict and that's what really really worries me and look sarah to your earlier point like i hear what you're saying but i'm actually agreeing with you to some extent i'm actually saying everybody dropped the ball a little bit on this conversation that the president that president trump and his supporters i think did a real disservice by conflating. But I think a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the left took the scientific arguments to a place that did shut down a legitimate conversation that still continues. All
0: right, we're going to have to take a quick break and we can pick up here for a little bit. We're, we're going to come back to talk about the Chicago mayoral race and what it says about crime and, and policing and big city politics. We'll also pick this up for, uh, for a minute or two. You're listening to Left, Right and Center.
3: You're hearing civilized yet provocative opinions from across the political spectrum. Now we need to know what you think. Tweet us at LRC KCRW. All
0: right, we're back again with left, right, and center. We're going to move on in a second, but uh, I just want to kind of wrap up the conversation we were having about um, about COVID and uh, the COVID origins. Um, Mo, you were saying you you kind of agree with a lot of, you know, at least some of what Sarah was saying, uh, finish that up. And then Sarah, yeah, I want to I hear what you have to say too. I don't think anybody uh, acted at their
2: best the, the, in, in this debate, in this topic. I think we all could have acted a little bit better. I think the right and President Trump and his supporters could have maybe had more impact if they hadn't conflated it with some of a lot of the racist dog whistles. I think the left could have done better if they had separated that from a legitimate conversation because it is in our interest. The one thing that to this day we're still messing up is that there is nobody out there saying that this was intentional or that this was man-made. But there are some people that are still conflating that argument, saying that if it came from a lab...
0: It was deliberate.
2: That there's the possibility that it was deliberate.
0: Which distracts from the important question here, like understanding where this came from so we can learn... We're still messing it up. And I think we can all do a better job with this. Sarah?
1: We should be able to have this conversation, right? You're saying, I've read this. I'm saying, I've read this. Here's what I don't know. Let's talk about it. And it gets back to our conversation from last week. If you want to, you know, you have the problem on the right where they're saying, we want social media companies to be forced to carry all, you know, statements and posts... Uh, regardless of political ideology. And you have the left saying, we want social media companies to crack down on misinformation. Uh, You know, Governor Newsom in California passing a law that punished doctors for telling their patients anything that contradicted quote, contemporary scientific consensus around COVID. That is wild to have the government telling doctors that they're not allowed to tell their patients what they believe the science actually says, is if it's not what the majority of scientists and doctors believe. That of course was enjoined by a court. And it gets to this question of misinformation. I think it's so dangerous for the left to play with that term because who gets to define misinformation? We just had a three-year experiment with it and we failed on every single major issue. We failed on where it came from. We failed on masks. We failed on the vaccines. I don't mean failed on the policy, by the way. I mean failed on the conversation. All of those you were not allowed to question. They were labeled as misinformation. And it turns out it wasn't misinformation. It's at least a viable ongoing scientific question.
0: Well, and I think some of the lessons here can even be applied like into our own personal lives. It's like when when someone says something, it's like the impulse these days is often to to judge and dismiss, where whereas maybe we should all think about and this goes straight up to political leaders like, you know, okay, you're saying a thing, I don't get it. I think it might be completely wrong, but like let me let me hear you out a little more and why you believe this. Um
1: you and know. can I flag one thing that y'all said that I actually think that should apply to? Um, that the idea that it was intentionally released from the lab. There is no evidence that I have seen or I'm aware of that this virus was intentionally released from the lab. But if we simply move the bar and say, now that's misinformation and you're not allowed to talk about that or have that as something that you think could be or should be looked into, I think we're just falling for the same problem over again. We should look into it. We should find out it's not true. Great, move on.
2: The, um, but this is the challenge with fighting conspiracy theories because some cons- there are some things out there that are conspiracy theories that you know are conspiracy theories that people can say they're raising questions about that there might not be hardcore evidence, right? But people are going to keep saying it and it's dangerous. And this is a great example. Every single scientific study, every single uh, intelligence agency has said, we have seen no evidence at all that this was intentionally released. Pushing back hard on this notion, because that notion being out there is damaging, I think, to the public good. But there are some people out there who are spreading a conspiracy that it was.
0: And that is not helpful to the national discourse. But Sarah's point is it is helpful to at least explore it.
1: And telling people they're not allowed to say it is exactly the problem. A year ago, you would have said it being released from a lab was a conspiracy theory. So we're just exactly back where we were.
0: We're going to move on um, to the city of Chicago because uh, even though it's just one city and one municipal election in one city, uh, people who follow politics are are really seeing some broader lessons in what we saw take place in Chicago this week. This is... um, You know, a city where a mayor once elected can rule like a monarch seemingly forever, if we all remember Richard Daly. But this week, Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot, became the first incumbent mayor of Chicago in 40 years not to be reelected. She failed to even make it to the runoff. Lightfoot made headlines as the first openly gay mayor of Chicago, also the first black woman to serve in that role. She led her city through the pandemic. She tried to fight rampant crime. Homicides are down, but... Not enough in the eyes of voters, apparently. According to a recent poll by WBEZ, the Chicago Sun-Times, Telemundo Chicago, and NBC, 63% of Chicagoans say they don't feel safe in their city right now. Paul Vallis, a former education official who led the first round of voting for mayor in Chicago, ran on doing a better job. And here he is.
2: Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America.
0: All right. That is Paul Vallis, who, if he wins in the next round of voting, would become the, the new mayor of Chicago. Um, Mo, if, if you were writing the internal memo for Democrats about how to avoid what happened to Lori Lightfoot here, what, what would the opening lines be?
2: It is in vogue and chic to dump all over politics. But I think this was a great example of why politics matters. If you're going to govern, you got to be good at the politics. You can't piss everybody off. I mean, that's it. That's why she lost. It's because she pissed everybody off. Including the unions, which is which you really can't piss off if you're a Democrat, right? Right, if you're a Democrat in a major city... And she pissed off the unions on that are sort of lean towards the left. She pissed off the unions that leaned towards the right. She alienated those on the left who didn't like her education policies. She alienated people who were kind of non-ideological um, because of her kind of bouncing all over the place on policing and crime, coming in as a major advocate for police reform and maybe going a little too far with some of it, and then realizing that she maybe went too far on it, and so then suddenly trying to become an advocate. She, You've got to have a core to who you are, and you've got to work with people. It's an old expression that politics is about addition, not subtraction. It's about bringing people together and building a coalition. But in this case, I think the mayor made politics all about division, and she lost as a result. And you got two really different candidates making it into the runoff. I think the runoff election is going to be such a fascinating case study for sort of where urban America is uh, in the year 2023 with two candidates with very, very different visions. Um but at the end of the day, it comes down to you've got to actually be good at the politics of building coalitions and trying to bring people in. You've got to focus on those issues that people care about in a way that invites them into the process. And if you don't do that, they're not going to be happy.
0: But some would say that also means being beholden to big unions. And, I mean, it, is, is there a reality here that that particularly if you're a Democrat in a city like Chicago, that's still the reality yeah. in our politics? You You can't be— No,
2: look, there— There are Democratic mayors across the country who have successfully challenged teachers' unions. But they've done it in a way that actually brings parents in and and still can push progressive education policies but not be beholden to the unions. That wasn't the case here. I mean, look, she had the misfortune of governing against the backdrop of one of the most—I mean, I would have— I would hate to be a mayor in a major city over the past four years with everything that's been going on. I mean, it is a difficult, difficult job in the best of times. And these were not the best of times with COVID and with racial unrest and policing reform and so many of the issues we've been dealing with. And you saw people more plugged into some of those issues than they normally are. I think... This is not an indictment on the Democratic Party. I think this is, or progressivism, I think it's an indictment on a mayor who did not focus on bringing the community along with her. Because you can stand up to unions if you've got the community coming along with you. Hmm. She didn't. She alienated the community while taking on the unions. And then you got no friends left at the end of the day.
0: Sarah, do you draw some broader lessons from, from this?
1: I'm going to defer to Mo on Democratic politics, and everything he's saying sounds right to me. Uh, It's funny how in vogue in our politics on both sides, the idea of, um, no, let's let's subtract people. I mean, just look at Arizona and Carrie Lake. You know, if you support John McCain or voted for him, don't bother voting for me.
0: Yeah, you just wiped away a lot of potential (laughs) (laughs) electors.
1: And, like, for what— reason. Uh, So I agree with all of that. I think all of his points are well made. The only thing I think I can really add is to say, um, you know, there's the way, way overused. um, It's the economy, stupid. And maybe it's not even that specific. Maybe we need to broaden it to something more like it's their lives, stupid. Like it's not about philosophy or ideology. Um, People care about whether you're trying even to make their lives better or if you just don't care because you're stuck in some philosophical debate with your opponents. And to some extent, it reminds me a little of the Latinx debate on the left, right? Like you have sort of these people at the top telling everyone else, this is the term we are now using. Um, and then everyone else is like, what are you talking about? I'm talking about on the left here, forget the right. And within this crime conversation, you're looking at the New York mayor's race and now Chicago and, and several other interesting races where this became a top-tier issue. It's not that folks are expecting you to fix everything tomorrow, but they are expecting you to understand that there is a problem and quit talking to them about, uh, you know, equity language and blah, 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 and not care that they're worried about crime in their neighborhoods or that police are quitting and not being replaced, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So the conversation about police to me echoes that Latinx conversation of folks at the top, not only not knowing what seems to be going on in most Americans' lives in their cities, but like not even pretending to care and that that's gonna get rejected by most people, including people on the left.
2: I'd be careful about characterizing it as people at the top, right? Because when you look at where a majority of Democratic officials are, they are not with the defund the police crowd an overwhelming majority of Democratic elected officials, of candidates, of-
1: um Totally fair. I don't mean defund the police. Defund the police got turned into like its own little mini thing. It's sort of like how people kept saying we're not teaching CRT in schools. Fine, but that's not what I'm talking about. It's on this, well, we need to have consent decrees with the police and we need to reform all the police departments and they need to do all of X, Y, and Z and police are bad and we should teach our children that they're not good and let's have this whole other conversation. Folks are like, okay, but my Whole Foods got shot up three times yesterday.
2: Yeah, but I think where a majority of people are I think where definitely a majority of the Democratic Party is, but I think a majority of voters are, is that bad things are happening out there. And so, yes, we do need some reform, but reform does not mean weaken. Reform does not mean take off the streets. And so they're they're looking for leaders who are willing to step up and have that organization. How do we stop the bad cops from doing bad things without making our communities less safe for everybody? Um, and that's a tough conversation to have, but that's where you see a majority of the Democratic Party is. I think what happens is when too many, uh, sometimes activists, take the
0: conversation in a different place. Well, not just activists, Mo, but Brandon Johnson, who's running against Vallis. I mean, has been talking yes. as much about inequality as as you know crime, and you know that that's yeah. it's an important. I mean, inequality is a, a vitally important conversation in our in our society. But you know, as you just said, he's facing sort of cross pressures on what to focus on what what's the answer what's the balance the answer is to just talk about people right to
2: talk about what people are seeing in their communities every single day and finding the balance that brings them all to the table and that sounds almost cliche but it is actually the answer it is actually what motivates voters when when they see politicians either be dismissive of their concerns as i think a lot of folks feel on the right, or they see uh, some preachiness from their politicians, as they see from a lot of folks on the left, they don't feel included. And so trying to thread that needle to bring everybody to the table, make them all feel like they've got a stake, most people believe that we can have real police reform that doesn't defund or diminish the police force. That is the common sense, common approach. And we too often, particularly at the local level, get lost in, uh, in in that conversation to a way that actually ends up alienating entire communities.
0: All right, we're going to leave it there. Sarah Moe and I will be right back to talk about whether we can all stop freaking out about stuff. We're going to bring in political comedy writer Jeff Maurer. Uh, you're listening to Left, Right & Center.
3: Thanks for listening to Left, Right & Center. Is there someone in your life who could benefit from hearing a civilized discussion from all sides? Share the show with them. You can stream all episodes at kcrw.com slash LRC, straight from the KCRW app, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Back again with Left, Right, and Center. I'm your host, David Green. Sarah Isger is here. She's senior editor at The Dispatch. Moa Lathy is here, executive director at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service. So Sarah recently shared uh, an article that she found on a blog that is called I Might Be Wrong. It was written by the political comedy writer Jeff Maurer. The headline of the piece was, OMG, stop freaking out is a bad response to right-wing freakouts. Uh, we all read it. We all loved it. Um, Sarah, what what got you into it?
1: I have no idea how this came across my phone, but I was definitely in public. And uh, look, anything that's called I Might Be Wrong, I want to read. I just love <laughs> sort of epistemological humility. Yeah. Um, and so I was expecting something very different. And when I opened it, I just, look, Every single line of this is a treasure. It's both intellectually honest and interesting and a good addition to our conversation, but also delightfully good writing. So I know we're going to talk about this, but really, really, everyone needs to go read this for themselves. It's so good. But I'm going to do a dramatic reading of the top part.
0: And the author is listening, we should say. So this is a lot of pressure. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see where this goes.
1: It is my firm opinion that the ability of m ms is not the most vital issue facing our nation. Honestly, It might not even be in the top five, but you've probably heard that an uproar around character design has led Mars Candies to discontinue their M&M characters. That news ripped across yesterday's discourse like it was the Kennedy assassination. (laughs) Um, It goes on from there, and just again, like when you get to the end, for the record... I still think that all of the M&M's are sexy as hell. <laughs> Discontinue them all you want, Mars. That will only increase the public appetite for the erotic <laughs> M&M drawings I sell in my Etsy store. <laughs> I just, That's I was dying. Amazing. I was spitting water out on, on people who were trying to serve me, and I couldn't explain why, because how do you explain the ability of M&M's?
0: Well, Jeff Maurer, you're here, and uh, I don't know if you knew that you were causing Sarah Isker to spit water <laughs> at people, but um, congratulations.
4: Thank you. That is my goal, is to create problems for Sarah Isker's staff.
0: <laughs> I hope you tipped Sarah. I'm sure you did. <laughs> well, Jeff, can you can you uh, say more about this dynamic in our politics you were talking about? I mean, the, the example you used was M&Ms, and when the company announced that they were— Making their mascots more inclusive. The right said this is ridiculous and oh so woke. People on the left said oh right, stop freaking out. Um, so what? What is the larger point you're, yeah,
4: you're making for the, us? <laughs> yeah, because the ability of MMs really is just an entry point. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, entry point to. Um, I, I feel that when something, somebody on the left does something dumb, the right freaks out. I feel that for people on the left like myself. To fail to say, yeah, look, that thing is pretty stupid, but also the freakout is pretty stupid, and let's focus on what's important. Failing to say that I think is a missed opportunity. So often we just skip to the second part. We just go, oh my god, can you talk? Can you um, believe what Tucker Carlson's talking about tonight? I feel that we should say the first thing: yes, the M, M- thing is stupid. Before we get to the second thing: yes, the freakout is also stupid.
0: But aren't all the freakouts sort of entertaining for a for a comedy writer? <laughs> well
4: look I did have to go a, a little soft on the freakouts because I uh, am a comedy writer I you know I wrote for John Oliver for a long long time and I know how valuable a dumb self-owned by the other side of the aisle can be I remember the day Trump tweeted Kofifi it was like folks we're knocking off early today
0: <laughs> <laughs>
4: the show is the, written the itself. day's
0: writing is done
4: exactly exactly
0: well but you do say that there's a version of this on the right, which involves uh, the, the the folks you described as anti anti Trumpers. Yes, um, who are they, and and why did they, you know, fascinate you? Yeah,
4: I I, th- I think Jonathan Chait coined the phrase anti anti Trump. Anti um, anti Trumpers are Republicans who are not comfortable with Trump. They're embarrassed by Trump. Sarah, maybe you know somebody like this. Um, th- <laughs> they're they're embarrassed by Trump they don't want to defend him, but they also don't want to lose their cred uh, as being on the right. So what they do is they focus all their ire on the people who are against Trump. They just skip over the part where they comment on Trump whatsoever, and they focus on the overreaction to Trump. And there was, is some overreaction to Trump on the left. If you spend all your time focusing on those people, then you still get to punch left, which is what you want to do if you're a Republican. So I do see this as kind of the mirror image on the left. We're sort of ignoring the dumb things that our side does and continuing to punch right. I think we should acknowledge the dumb things that happen on
0: our side. Which, I mean, is is a very good human lesson. Like, it does sound like there's something serious here. If we're just focusing on overreactions and and craziness among our opponents, we actually never self-reflect. Like, our politics have changed so much, I assume, that— political comedy and political comedy writing has changed a lot, too. Like, how has your job changed in our current politics compared to, you know, five, 10 years ago?
4: Oh, it's it's changed massively. Uh, I I mean, for one thing, Trump was a real spanner in the works. Um, He dominated the news cycle. It used to be we would start, last week tonight airs on Sunday. We used to start on Wednesdays and we'd start to, you know, figure out what's going to be at the top of the show. Which this is the John much. Oliver
0: show, yeah. Yeah, John
4: Oliver's show. Because the top of the show is current events. When Trump got into office, we didn't really start that process to fr- till Friday. Because he would do something dumb on Wednesday and it's like, he's going to top that by the end of the week. So don't waste your effort. But I think, I, I think the main thing that's changed is that these shows have become a more established part of the news media landscape
0: which is funny you're talking about like Oliver Stephen Colbert exactly, like that
4: exactly yeah Seth Meyers he, he does right. you know a uh, closer look is a very political show and then there's a million you know a million ones that have been on for a little while there Hassan Minaj had one for a while Sam B had one for a long time the daily show of course is still there um, th- these shows are part of the media landscape now they're part of the news landscape now they're one of the ways that people get their news which is weird because I don't think anybody set out for that to happen. It just kind of happened. And one thing I worry about is that maybe not all these shows are totally grappling with their place in the news landscape and, and taking that all that seriously.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I asked Jon Stewart this question a few years ago. Like, what have you done to us by making <laughs> shows like this so so popular? But, but yeah, I mean, they seem to still be figuring out the... The responsibility, like, they've become prominent at a time when I think people don't trust news and news organizations, obviously, nearly as much as they used to. They're they're looking for content to come from other places. This is, you know, comedy is one of those places. Um, like, I, I mean, when you're inside on one of those shows, do you feel that sense of responsibility? Like, people actually might be getting their news from this? I I
4: did. I certainly did. I was scared to death of putting something that was you know, intellectually dishonest on TV. Uh so yeah, I certainly did. Many other people do, but you know, I don't know. I it's a news organization, right? Any news organization is going which is a weird a weird way to <laughs> refer to a comedy show, but it is essentially a news organization and any news organization is going to struggle with what is the truth? What is worth talking about? How do we present this? How do we Portray the world in a way that is accurate, and like to be fair, when you're asking that question to a you know 24 year old comedy writer who two weeks ago was teaching improv on a cruise ship, it's like I don't know if they're really going to have journalistic principles at the front of their mind. I
0: think they might just be randomly pitching jokes, you know, hoping to get some stuff on the air. Sarah Moe, I, I when Jeff says they're news organizations, that they, they kind of are but that sort of freaks me out because I don't want them to be, and that really <laughs> scares me. I mean, are our shows like colbert and and John Oliver, like are do we just have to accept now that that's news, which is making me cringe? I mean, there's an interesting piece I read a couple of years ago
2: by a well-known journalist who wrote that media is dying, but journalism is thriving. And it was a really fascinating piece because what he was essentially saying was that the the old model of how we would get our information from newspapers or from the nightly news and then eventually cable news and the 24-hour cycle, that that was just dying a slow, painful, ugly death. But that storytelling and information, uh, the dissemination of information was being done in all new ways long form, short form, everything from, you know, Snap to, um, you know, to podcasts, to Substack, what have you, that there's all sorts of new forms of ways that people are getting their information. And I see it, ever since I left politics and started working at a university and talking to the students here about where they get their information, half of the places they tell me I've never even heard of So I think we do need to come to terms with the fact that, I don't know if I'd say they're news sources, but I would absolutely say they're information sources. And they're they're where people are sort of understanding the narratives that are driving our discourse better, and for better and for worse. And that
0: is the new reality. Sarah, can I ask you, you you often talk about how important it is to have like an on-ramp to conversations for people on the right, like on college campuses and, and elsewhere, and that that's a real problem. Like in, in this world of, of political comedy and the shows we're talking about, is there enough of an on-ramp for people on the right? Like, should there be more shows that, that are sort of open to all perspectives?
1: So actually, my answer to both questions is going to be almost off topic in that, I, and, and it's going to scare you even more. I think that as the political comedy shows have moved more into politics and news and have become absolutely sources of news, Mo's just wrong on that one. On the other end, the cable news shows have moved more into entertainment. They're not really news as we used to think of that anymore, a lot more opinion than it ever used to be. And to bring it back to Jeff's overall point here, both MSNBC and Fox News, I mean, whatever news organization you want to talk about almost, are anti, anti their own side. And so, you know, they're not going to criticize their own audience. Instead, they're not going to say anything about that at all. They're going to, you know, focus on, criticize the other side. And you certainly see that with the comedy shows, of course. There's plenty to make fun of on the left, But they're going to spend their time making fun of folks on the right because that's what their audience is going to feel good about. Look, the right has their own stuff. The right, uh, you know, credits itself with sort of memification of politics. They own a lot of these online spaces. Um, They, you know, Gutfeld Tonight has enormous ratings. People on the left don't watch it and don't really know about it. But it's a political comedy show that a whole lot of people on the right are watching every night. Um, So. I just think Jeff has really hit on something here that instead of constantly beating up on the other side because it makes you feel uh, good, you don't have to be self-reflective of your side at all, acknowledge before you beat up on the other side that your own side had problems that led to this in the first place.
0: Jeff, I hope you'll come back to our show. It's been fun. Uh, Sparked a good conversation. Well, thank you. I hope I can encourage you to swear more on air. Well, that that is a that is a, a that is guaranteed. But uh, we'd love to have you back for other reasons too. Um, Jeff, thanks a lot. Thank you. It's Jeff Maurer. He's a former senior political writer on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, also a political comedy writer on his Substack blog. I might be wrong. Also co-host of a new podcast called Wrong Think. All right, it is time once again for our left, right, and center rants and raves. Sarah Isger, all yours.
1: All right, I've got a rant. I want to talk about the student loan cancellation case that was just argued at the Supreme Court. If the court strikes it down, as I suspect they will, the headline will read, Supreme Court Ends Loan Forgiveness, which is true, but it's blaming the wrong branch. Nobody questions whether Congress could create this program or address coal-powered power plants, ban bump stocks, redefine sex under Title VII, all things that the left and right have blamed the Supreme Court for doing wrong but Congress doesn't act because presidents from both parties assure them that they don't have to. The president does it without having to compromise through that messy, gross, democratic legislative process, gets the headlines, pleases his side, Congress doesn't have to take a hard vote and the Supreme Court gets blamed. And in this case in particular, it's notably egregious because the executive branch changed the program several times in the run-up to this case not to make the program better, but to attempt to shield it from judicial review. Whether you're in favor of the policy behind this or not, it should scare the hell out of you that a president from the other political party can spend $500 billion without congressional authorization, and the only question is whether courts can even look at it. And then we blame the courts. Yikes.
0: Mo
2: I read an article in the Dallas Morning News this week that just had my blood boiling. A 13-year-old... A girl in the eighth grade was in gym class when she heard a boy, one of her classmates, tell another classmate, don't come to school tomorrow in a somewhat menacing tone. The 13-year-old girl didn't think much of it at first, kind of went about her day, but then allowed the times that she lived in to creep into her consciousness. And as she was thinking about Newtown and Parkland and Uvalde, she started to become uncomfortable and wonder if this was one of those types of situations. She went to her group chat with her friends and told them about it and how uncomfortable it made her. And then she went and talked to her mother as soon as she got home from school. As she and her mother were preparing to call the school under the sense, you know, if you see something or hear something, say something. Just as they were getting ready to call, they got a call from the school administrators asking her to come in where they interrogated her for spreading rumors that um, caused a panic. This girl herself ended up being suspended from school because she talked to her friends first before reporting it. Now, I have so many problems with this. First of all, the fact that our schools are, that we are living in a society where that is where students' heads go in the first place, when they hear something like that, shows that our inability to to handle school violence is a problem. The fact that she's a 13-year-old who is learning how to handle anxiety and handle these heavy moments, and she gets penalized for talking to her friends before going to an adult, which she did do, is a problem. This story encapsulates so much of, I think, where our schools may be failing our children and we have to do a better job on every one of these levels.
0: I guess I'm sort of going to rave, but this is part public service announcement. Um, I want to rave about McDonald's for always warning us how about how hot coffee can be. This goes back to the legendary 1992 case where a woman spilled McDonald's coffee on herself. The coffee got into her sweatpants, which held the hot liquid on her skin long enough to give her third degree burns. Um, I am sorry to get personal, but... I had coffee in a to-go cup made in my own pot at home this week, uh, and those to-go mugs work. I left the lid open, spilled coffee into the sleeve of my hoodie, which held it against my skin, and I have a second-degree burn on my arm. I went to the doctor. I am okay. For the record, I'm not suing anybody because the only person I could sue is myself. But seriously, be careful. We might joke about that (laughs) McDonald's lawsuit 30 years ago, but it is no joke. Uh, and that is all the time we have for today. I want to thank Sarah Isger and Moa Lathie, And we also heard from Jeff Maurer. Appreciate him being here. Left, Right, and Center is produced by Sarah Singer Schiff. Our production assistant is Alexander Applegate. Our executive producer is Arnie Seipel. This show is recorded and mixed by Matt Schwartz. Todd M. Simon composed our theme music. Left, Right, and Center is a co-production of KCRW and Fearless Media. I'm David Green. Thanks for being here and come back next week for more Left, Right, and Center.
1: FYI, the McDonald's coffee lady was Right. Download and
3: subscribe at kcrw.com slash LRC, the KCRW app, or wherever you find podcasts. Left, Right, and Center is produced and distributed by KCRW.
0: Support for Left, Right, and Center comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash LRC. That's O-D-O-O dot slash L-R-C. Odoo, modern management made simple.
3: Phelps.